when I got back home, I should get a little hand mirror and go look at my genitals. I had never done this. I was 18 years old and I was amazed that I really felt like I was going to confront an enemy, even though it was part of my body. If I had been told to go look in a mirror at any other part of my body, I'd just been like, Meh, okay. But uh, I had this sense of like, I was going to go confront a villain. Welcome to Lovelink, your guide to love and sex in all forms. We're your hosts, Moan Humphrey and Sina Simon. Today we'll be talking to researcher and sex educator Emily Nagoski. She is the author of the best-selling book, Come As You Are, The Surprising New Science That Will Transform Your Sex Life. Through the lens of scientific research, Dr. Nagoski works to help women and men find their authentic sexual well-being. In our culture, which is saturated by shame-based messages that keep us from unlocking our true sexual selves, it's refreshing and healing to have a figure like Dr. Nagoski, who normalizes sexual preferences and dispels the culturally bound myths about sex that most of us have grown up with. We are honored to have her on our podcast today to talk about female sexual well-being. So Emily, maybe you can start telling us about how you became interested in sex research. Yeah, yeah. So um, I stumbled into it accidentally and I kept stumbling into it accidentally until it became clear it was what I was supposed to be doing. I started out uh, when I was in college, my very first semester, I was a big old nerd. I knew I was going to go to grad school. I had no idea for what. And I knew I needed, you know, some volunteer work on my resume to make me look like a good grad school candidate. I'm worried about my first semester in college. Um, So I asked the people, People who lived in my dorm, you know, what can I do on campus as volunteer work? And a guy on my floor said, hey, come be a peer health educator with me. And I was like, "Uh, sure, okay." So I went and I interviewed and I got accepted and I got trained and I started going into residence halls, teaching about condoms and contraception and later on consent. And I eventually got trained to be a sexual assault prevention educator and crisis response. And uh, though my undergrad degree is in psychology with minors in cognitive science and philosophy, um, and I, like, I loved what I was doing academically. It was preparing me. My plan was to be a clinical neuropsychologist. I work with people with traumatic brain injury and stroke, and I love all the brain stuff still. But the work I was doing as a volunteer peer health educator made me like who I am as a person in a way that all that academic stuff just couldn't. Um, And so that's the path I chose. I went to Indiana University uh, for a master's degree in counseling psychology. And I, again, lucked into a clinical internship at the Kinsey Institute. I worked as an educator there. I stayed at Indiana University to get a PhD in public health, basically, with a concentration in human sexuality. Again, studying with folks at the Kinsey Institute. Um, And yeah, uh, by then it had been 15 years and that was clearly my path. So you talk about how you became really interested in this area of of sex and sex research uh, when you were in in school and in college Mm -hmm. and in graduate school. But I'm curious if uh, you go back to your childhood, you know, you talk a lot about cultural messages around sex and sexuality that we all receive. And I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the cultural messages you received about sex and sexuality growing up. Yeah, it's weird. Um, so I have an identical twin sister. So we grew up genetically identical, living in the same household. And amazingly, by the time we got to adolescence, we had absorbed opposite 
ideas about women's sexuality and how to be a sexual person walking around as a woman, I had absorbed sort of the Cosmo Glamour magazine uh, attitude by the time I was 15. I was pretty sure that the way a woman or a girl could be successfully a sexual human being was to display her sexuality. And I was a nerd and I didn't do all this stuff, but I was preparing myself to have a sexual partner uh, by reading magazines and learning that, oh, men really like it when women seem to be having a good time. So I learned that you're supposed to perform your sexuality, you're supposed to make noise and you're supposed to be sexually confident. My sister, by contrast, learned the sort of puritanical women aren't supposed to want or like sex. They do it only because their partners want it. Um, and to even have a sexual thought was to be a slut and a bad person. Um, and we only sort of came to converge around our sexuality. It took like a decade for us to get to a point where even we were really talking to each other even about sexuality because we the doors were closed. I learned about sexuality from a combination of women's magazines and the medical encyclopedias in our house. And uh, Amelia didn't even start learning about sex until she got to college. Wow, it's wow. amazing. So do you think it was mostly the material that you were absorbing or do you think there was also an element of your personalities that were right, also... So how did, yeah, why did I, what's going on there? There's, I don't know exactly. I, all I know is that when I started uh, going into residence halls and talking to other college students about sexuality, even during trainings, I was the one who could name body parts. I can say vulva, vagina, penis, clitoris in the same way that I do elbow, finger, toenail. Like they're all parts to me. I just like I didn't have a, an, a flush of like ah that pretty much every single other person had. I don't know why I didn't have that feeling, but that was one of the experiences that made me go, maybe this is what I'm supposed to do because they all seem to find this really difficult. And the fact that I don't seems to be pointing me in a direction. I just, just sort of had this innate, why are people freaking out about this? Which is strange. One of the things I write about in the book is uh, disgust and how sexual disgust in particular feeds into sexual shame and the cultural norms when we're taught to be grossed out by our bodies. Um, of course, that interferes with our sexual well-being. It's even one of the strongest predictors of sexual pain for women. Um, and I am really squeamish about everything except sex. And I think it also gets in the way of sex education too. I mean, oh, I yeah. remember being in high school and learning about sex organs, STDs, and just wanting to die and cringing being around my <laughs> tween yep. peers. So I think it's really important that people talk about it in a way that's very comfortable. I got tweeted a story from a woman who had read Come As You Are, and then she watched her adult grown brother change his baby daughter's diaper and when his little baby daughter was all clean and ready for the new diaper she reached down and touched her vulva and the brother said ah don't touch that oh wow and the sister was like I, before reading come as you are would never have noticed that and like seeing it then i was like how would he have behaved if he had had a baby son instead would he have said the same thing this is a moment that she's not going to remember, this little girl. But those tiny moments accumulate over time and gradually offer us the lesson that our body does not belong to us and is not ours to do with as we choose. 
that our bodies are somebody else's to decide what we do with them. Since we're talking about sexual well-being, mm-hmm. um, can you talk a little bit about the differences between how men and women are aroused sexually? Sure. The first thing to remember is that there is way less difference than there is similarity. The thing I say over and over in the book is we are all made of the same parts. We're just organized in different ways. And that goes for everything from our basic anatomy, all the same parts, just organized in different ways, to our sexual response, all the same parts, just organized in different ways. In terms of sexual response, the basic parts are arousal, desire, and if you want to separate it from the other parts, orgasm. Um, And there's a couple of differences in the way arousal happens. The main one that I give a whole chapter to is this phenomenon that researchers called arousal non-concordance. So this is, so arousal in the scientific sense refers to activation, both in the brain and in the uh, peripheral nervous system, your body, basically, specifically, often people are talking about your genitals. Um, The standard narrative for the way people get aroused is if you've got a penis, then your arousal shows up as an erection, blood flow to the genitals. And if you've got a vulva, then your arousal shows up in the form of lubrication at the mouth of the vagina. In reality, Penises also lubricate. You get a pre-cum, pre-ejaculate that uh, oozes out of the top of the penis to lubricate the head of the penis, preparation for penetration. And you often get a lubrication at the mouth of the vulva. And it's the same basic mechanism that creates that. And in the same way penises get erect with blood flow, we also get uh, blood flow to the entire vulva, especially the clitoris. The mistake we make beyond thinking that it's erection for dudes and wetness for girls is thinking that there's necessarily a very obvious relationship between what your genitals are doing and how turned on you feel in the research. What they found is, uh, there's about a 50% overlap between, so if you, you get a guy to come into your research laboratory and you have him strap a mechanism onto his genitals and show him a lot of porn, um, and you give him a dial to rate how turned on he feels, there's about a 50% overlap between how much blood is flowing to his genitals and how turned on he says he feels on that dial. Does that make sense so far? 50% overlap between those two measures. And then um, you bring a woman into the same laboratory. You have her strap some mechanism onto her genitals too. You show her the same porn. You have her on the dial rate, how aroused she feels. It turned out there's a 10, 10% overlap between how turned on she feels and uh, how much blood is flowing to her genitals. We don't know why this difference exists. Um, And it sort of doesn't matter why the difference exists. The problem is that we all grew up in a world where we were taught that your genital behavior is the thing that communicates to the world what you want and like. And that is, it turns out, totally not true, even for people with penises. Um, There's not necessarily a straightforward correlation between what's going on down there and how you actively feel. So what can be the consequences of that non-concordance between what you're feeling and and what's actually happening physically? What I think what makes it most clear what the consequences are is when we try and analogize this with another physiological function. Like if you bite into a wormy apple, your mouth might water, right? That's just a physiological reflex that can happen. And nobody would ever say, well, your mouth watered. That must mean you actually really wanted and liked that moldy bruised apple. 
right? Um, if, if you if your doctor taps your patellar tendon and your leg kicks out, nobody's going to say, well, see, you kicked your thing out. And so you must actually want to kick your doctor. You may well like the moldy blues preach and you may or uh, a wormy apple um, or you may want to kick your doctor. But your reflexes are not how we're going to know that in the same way, just because your genitals are responding to something that doesn't tell us what you want or like. And when we assume that people's bodies are a more honest indicator of what they want and like than the person is, then all sorts of bad things go down. I cannot tell you how many students I've had send me notes or emails or tell me in person that this arousal non-concordance thing explains the experience they had where they were with their partner and they were like, no, I'm not, I'm not feeling it. I'm not into this. And their partner was like, well, you're wet. And they... The, the thing we do is when you're gender socialized feminine, you get taught to believe other people's opinions about your body more than you believe what your body itself is trying to tell you. And if you checking in with yourself, you're like, I'm not into this. This is not working for me. And your partner's like, yeah, you are. You're into this. We go with it. It, shows, it got codified. Oh, I'm going to get a little mad right now. Go so, do for it. it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, as research for the book, I read Fifty Shades of Grey, and there is a scene. Now, I'm a reader of romance novels. I like. I do a lot of work around sexual violence survivorship. I require happily ever afters in my life, and I can get those from romance novels. So I'm a fan of the romance novel. What's more feminist than women celebrating women's sexual pleasure and desire and satisfaction for women readers? It is a fantastic genre that has come a long way in the last 40 years. I'm a big fan. So I had a totally open mind when I opened this book. And the thing is, when you get to the first spanking scene in a romance novel, here's what's supposed to happen. The heroine is supposed to be going, I know I'm not supposed to like this, but I like it so much. So we get to the first spanking scene in Fifty Shades of Grey, and I read very carefully for even a single word that indicates she is experiencing pleasure. Our heroine, Anastasia, is she experiencing pleasure? There is not one word. She's squinching up her pace in vain. She's squirming and trying to get away. It all is just very painful. She consented to it, but she doesn't want it, and she doesn't like it. And then Christian Grey, the hero of the book, and her spanker, and eventually her stalker, and ultimately, douchebag. What he does is he spanks <laughs> her. She doesn't want it or like it, but she consents to it. He puts his fingers in her vagina and says, feel this, Anastasia. You're soaking just for me. See how much your body likes this? Mm, yeah. Right? And right. I know a lot of women who in real life had an experience. Here's the worst thing about it. She later on in an email goes on to describe the experience as feeling debased, degraded, and abused. That's how she felt. And yet, because he said, here, look, your genitals responded. That means you really wanted and liked this. She believes him. So women can end up performing arousal when in fact they really aren't. It's their bodies are behaving in the natural reflexive way in response to a sexually relevant stimulation. That's what's going on. What happens is our bodies will respond to any sexually relevant stimulation, even if it's not one we want or like you just put, right. I mean, this is in a laboratory. Women's genitals even respond to videos of bonobo chimpanzees copulating. And if you go on YouTube and you search for bonobo GG rubbing, you might notice when you watch those videos that your genitals respond. Does that mean that you want or like sex with bonobo chimpanzees? <laughs> no, of course not. 
So yeah, women, because their bodies are doing something, they have been taught to believe, well, that means that this is your whole identity is tied to the behavior of your genitals. It doesn't make any sense. And it's not true for men either. Just because your body's responding in a particular way doesn't mean you are a particular thing or want or like a particular thing. You know that by search inside your heart, you know it to be true. That's, you know, by, you know, use your words. That's how you know. Well, I'm so glad you're correcting the world with this because I think it's so important to combat the kinds of messages we're getting from Fifty Shades of Grey where millions of people, I mean, sadly, are reading this and and learning. I've sold as many copies as Fifty Shades. (laughs) I will feel I have done my job. (laughs) So when when you, I'm curious, when you had women come into your office and uh, talk to you about this issue of non-concordance or you framed it as non-concordance and it really resonated for them, what advice did you have? So if a woman is is with a guy and he's like, oh, you're so wet right now. And she's like, well, yeah, but I'm not really aroused. What, What advice did you give those women? I, well, so let's go. Let's assume this is an awesome situation where the person knows for sure that they want and like being there. They're definitely into the decision to be with this person a hundred percent. And what's happening is just not, you know, partic- not working for their particular body in this moment. So you know, your partner is touching you in a particular way, and you just have to imagine that I'm gesturing in quite an awkward way. Um, <laughs> and your partner, who you've decided you want to share this experience with, who you probably really like a lot, they say, do you like that? And what do you say in response? Nope. <laughs> like it, it would, If you say to your partner, do you like that? And they, they're just like, no, not really. I mean, like, I know it seems like I'm really enjoying this, but it turns out, no, it's, it's so we take it really personally. We have a lot of feelings about it. So the way you communicate effectively with your partner about what you actually want or are like in the moment is with simple redirection and praise. You treat them like a superhero for everything they do right. Instead of focusing on the, no, you're totally wrong just because, look, my genitals are responding, but I'm not there. Um, what you say is, you know what I really love is when you touch me this way. I love it when you focus on this. Come up and kiss me. So you like redirect to the stuff you really love and you don't in that moment do like the didactic, let me explain to you about the lack of correlation between genital response and subjective arousal. So that's the in the that communication. Makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> you want to be extraordinarily kind and gentle. All of us are fragile and have been taught a lot of dangerous, scary things about sexuality. We want so much to be good sex partners I mean, deep down, we want to be the best sex partner our partners ever had, right? So the idea that we're not just not the best, but like (laughs) failing, it's, I mean, we have to be so tender with each other and so careful. Yeah, it can be so painful to feel rejected. I mean, it's the worst pain to feel rejected. Yeah, to be like you're failing at giving me pleasure in bed. (laughs) You're that vulnerable. You might have taken off some clothes. You've, You've like, yeah. You have to be so careful. We have to be so gentle with each other. Yeah. Such a delicate process. So you you talked a little, we talked about the discordant arousal and genital um, arousal. Could you talk a little bit about desire in, I guess, men versus women and um, 
yeah, what what gets what gets us aroused? Yeah, again, way more similarity than difference. And there are some population level differences. And there's a whole lot of variation. There is no way to predict which partner is going to respond in which way to what sort of thing. The basic mechanism in your brain that controls sexual response is called the dual control mechanism. So that means there's how many parts? There's two, two. parts in the dual <laughs> control mechanism. Um, there's the sexual accelerator or the gas pedal, which is the part in your brain that responds to the sexually relevant stimulation. So it notices everything in the environment that can be coded as sexually relevant, whether it's your own sexy, sexy partner doing some sexy thing or bonobo chimpanzees copulating anything sexually relevant. It sends a signal that says turn on. Um, and that's the mechanism most of us are familiar with. The second one is... Well, if the first part is the gas pedal or the accelerator, the second part must be the brake. Um, and it, at the same time that your gas pedal is noticing sexually relevant stimulation, your brake is noticing all the good reasons not to be turned on right now. Everything in the environment that can be construed as a potential threat. And it sends the signal that says turn off. So your level of arousal is this combination of how, how much the ons are turned on and how much the offs are turned off. And it turns out that when people have any sort of difficulty with arousal, desire, orgasm, um, even though the standard story is that it's because you want to add more stimulation to the gas pedal, try role play and lingerie and porn and all like all things. And those are great. And try them if you like them. Awesome. It turns out, though, when people are struggling, it's usually not because there's not enough stimulation to the gas pedal, but because there is too much stimulation to the brake. And so many different kinds of things can hit the brake. The most common, of course, is just straight up stress. Like your life is hitting the brakes. If you are feeling exhausted and overwhelmed by life, that is not a time when your body's going to really easily go to sexuality. It's actually, let me uh, qualify that. Um, 80 to 90% of people, when they're stressed, depressed, or anxious, they find that it uh, has a negative impact on their sexuality. But for 10 to 20% of people, they find that it can actually increase their desire for sex and they um, may want to escape their, their stress or whatever by uh, using sexuality as a way to feel better. So people just vary in that way. We're not exactly sure why. Uh, so that's the basic mechanism. Stress is the number one thing that hits it. Relationship issues obviously can be a very big factor. Trust being the number one domain. Uh, so there's a, a relationship researcher and therapist named Sue Johnson, whom I adore. Her work is amazing. She wrote a book called Hold Me Tight that I highly recommend. And she says, trust is basically the answer to the question, are you there for me? So when you're in a time of difficulty in your life, can't, will your partner be there for you? That's trust. And if you can't answer that question with a definite yes, then how could you turn toward that partner with the vulnerability required for sexuality? Of course, that's going to impact your sexual well-being. Um, body image stuff is also way, way up there, especially for women, um, is a gigantic factor. There's a phenomenon called spectatoring, where instead of paying attention to the pleasurable things happening in your body during sex, uh, your attention is sort of noticing like how your boobs are moving and the jiggle on your tummy and like what's your facial expression and the cottage cheese on the back of your thigh and that are all those self-critical thoughts and all that like noticing of your body and worrying about it. Is that is that all going to hit the accelerator? No, no, totally. Like all those <laughs> thoughts are hitting the brakes. Um, so 
it, it sounds dreadful when I put it in a list like that. Fortunately, there's simple solutions to all these things. More effective yep. stress management. I know it's easy enough to say. Um, a healthy relationship. Great. Uh, the body image thing might be actually the simplest because all you got to do is just notice when those self-critical thoughts are happening and you grant yourself permission. You're going to set those thoughts to the side. You can have those self-critical thoughts literally any other time you want to, just right now, temporarily. You're going to set them once to one side and turn return your attention to the pleasurable things happening inside your body. And you just practice it. And as soon as you do that, you're going to notice some pleasurable things. And then you're going to have another self-critical thought. And you just say, oh, hey, look, another self-critical thought. And you set that to another side. And uh, then you turn your attention back to the pleasurable things. And with practice, gradually, those self-critical thoughts fade and don't come back anymore. They learn that they are not wanted and they don't show up. There was also a great mirror exercise that you talked about, uh, I think in your TED talk, um, to help overcome some of these negative thoughts we have about our bodies. Can you talk a little bit about that exercise? Sure, yeah. This is actually from uh, The Body Project, uh, which is um, uh, an evidence-based eating disorder prevention program for college students led by Eric Stice. Uh, And the activity is you stand in front of a mirror naked or as close to naked as you can tolerate. And you look at what you see there and you write down everything you see that you like. Of course, the first thing that happens is you get like the flood of self-critical, all the things you've been taught by the culturally constructed, aspirational ideal, the things that are wrong with your body that you're not conforming with the aspirational ideal and that therefore you have no permission to enjoy your sexuality. Of course, that's going to happen. Again, you just set those thoughts to one side and you write down whatever, if it is your eyelashes, if it's your eyebrows, if it is your kneecaps, whatever it is, you write it down. If it's your spirit, you write that down. Anything you can see in a mirror. Um, And then you do it again the next day and you do it the day after that and the day after that. And increasingly, what will happen is you will stop it's the technical term is internalization of the thin ideal. So if you were raised in America or most places in the post-industrial West, um, you got taught that thin is the cultural ideal and there's all kinds of other things that we're supposed to be. Um, and when you begin to notice the things that you like, your brain will stop believing the things that has been taught about what bodies are supposed to be so that they can be beautiful. And your brain will begin to recognize that body isn't that, that beautiful isn't a thing your body has to earn. Beauty is the thing your body already is. Beauty is the thing all bodies already are. Bodies just are beautiful. Your body right now, the way it is beautiful. Holy crap. But it takes a lot of practice. And there's no such thing as a cure here because you're going to go out into the toxic, poisonous environment as soon as you walk out the door or turn on your TV or anything else, um, which is going to start reinforcing the culturally constructed aspirational ideal, trying to poison you with that message. So you have to keep doing it to inoculate yourself against those messages that you're going to run into every day. And it sounds like a combination between kind of positive self-talk and internalizing that as well as being exposed to your body, becoming familiar with it. I feel like too often when you're uncomfortable with your body, you don't even want to look at it. And that just adds to the power of the shame. And there's a parallel uh, activity that I suggest. I recommend it to all my students everywhere I go, everywhere I teach to Get a mirror, a little hand mirror, and look at your genitals in this same way. Mm. 
I did it when I was 18. The reason I recommend it is because it was one of the very first things I learned as a sex educator. My very first training session, I got the homework assignment. When I got back home, I should get a little hand mirror and go look at my genitals. I had never done this. I was 18 years old. I grew up in a culture that taught me I was supposed to perform my sexuality. And I was amazed that I really felt like I was going to confront an enemy even though it was part of my body, if I had been told to go look in a mirror at any other part of my body, I'd just been like, meh, okay. But uh, I had this sense of like, I was going to go confront a villain somehow. Um, and when I went and actually looked at my genitals for the first time, I cried simply because of how ordinary and how integrated into my body they were. They were just normal and healthy and a part of my body and it was like I was welcoming them home in a way that's like they had been alienated from me and going to look the first time changed everything about how I thought about what my body was supposed to be. What a powerful experience. Do you assign this to your students as well? I don't assign it. It's not a requirement but I recommend it to everyone mm. on earth. And it's different for men because it's already out there for them to see all the time. Whereas for women, I mean, yep. it's so hidden from view. So yeah. it makes sense yeah. that, that that would be a powerful experience. A common medical term for uh, female genitalia is the pudenda, which is literally derived from the Latin word for to make ashamed. <laughs> wow. Right? Like this stuff is so buried deep into culture. It's so old. It's going to take a long time to excavate it from our psychological gardens. So I had a question about desire and long-term relationships because there's some research that's yeah. out that talks about a female's sex drive kind of dropping much faster in a long-term relationship than a man's sex drive, which is a much more slow and steady decline. So I'm wondering kind of what you can make of the, of the research in terms of our biologies, in terms of yeah. long-term relationships. So one of the main things is that it's not a drive, which is important uh, because of what a drive actually is. A drive uh, is, is an uncomfortable internal experience that pushes an organism, whether it's a human being or a rat or a snake, out into the environment to go fix the problem, right? So hunger is a drive. It indicates that there is a problem. It's an alarm bell, a wooga, wooga, red flashing lights, that if you don't replenish your energy store, what's going to happen? You're going to die. Thirst, same thing. If you don't balance your fluid levels, you're going to die. If you don't sleep, that's a drive. You will die if you don't get adequate rest. Um, thermoregulation is a drive. What will happen to you if you get too cold or too hot for too long? You will literally die. That's what a drive is. Sex is not one of those. <laughs> but it is just as natural, healthy, and integrated into our psychology as a drive, but it's not the same kind of mechanism. Instead of being an uncomfortable internal experience that pushes you out into the world, it is instead that some attractive external stimulus pulls you out into the world. Um, it's not analogous to hunger. It's analogous to curiosity. 
So everybody's got some level of sort of like, huh, interest in sex. We vary a whole lot. That dual control mechanism varies in its sensitivity. So some people, most of us are just like sort of average and clumped together in the sensitivity of our brakes and accelerator. But some people have really low sensitivity accelerators. So it takes a lot of sexually relevant stimulation to get their brains into a place where they're really interested in sex. Some people have really sensitive brakes, so it takes a whole lot of creating the right context where your brakes are not being hit in order for their uh, gas pedal to be freed up to allow them to want or be interested in sex. Um, and in fact, the people with the low sensitivity accelerators are the folks most likely to identify as asexual. About 1% of Americans identify as asexual, um, and the, it, there's nothing particular it's not a symptom of anything it just means that their accelerators are low sensitivity and that's just a normal variation on the way people are but for uh women the real difference between men and women and again it varies a lot from person to person but uh women's sexual response is more sensitive to context so in a long-term relationship what happens is the context changes early on in your relationship if you're say in the kitchen making dinner and your certain special someone comes over and starts kissing on your neck and whispering the sweet, sexy, certain special some things. Like in the beginning, you're already like hot and heavy, super excited to be there with the person and your knees melt instantly. 10 years later, when you've got a mortgage and children and pets and a few years of grievances accumulated with this person, all that stuff is hitting the brakes. So when your certain special someone comes over and kisses your neck in the same certain special way and whispers the things, your brakes are on so much so that instead of it feeling pleasurable, you sort of are just like, you get them trying to make dinner. The uh, most straightforward example of this is maybe the tickling example. So uh, if you're feeling in a fun, flirty, sexy state of mind uh, and you're certain special someone tickles you, not everybody loves tickling, but hypothetically you can imagine a world where tickling can feel pleasurable and playful and potentially lead to other things. But if you are pissed off that you're a certain special someone and they try to tickle you, you want to punch them in the face. The right. difference yeah. is not your desire per se the difference is the context in which it's happening and women's sexual response is very very sensitive to context so when women experience a decrease in their interest in sex it's usually because there was a context change that means there's way more stuff hitting the brakes so i always recommend people if they're experiencing difficulties with desire they used to want it and now they're like Mah. make a list of all the stuff that's hitting your brakes and see what you can do about that such good advice. You know, I think this idea about um, what I, you've termed responsive desire yeah. is so normalizing for women, because especially in our culture where the pharmaceutical industry is having this big push to create some sort of pill that's going to give women desire because they have a problem. Um, so, I mean, everybody that I've talked to, all the women I've talked to about your book and about this idea have just felt like it's so normalizing yeah. um, and taking away the shame that, oh, something is wrong with me. Like, I, why can't I get turned on by my partner? Yeah, they, here's the thing is they totally can get turned on by their partner. So responsive desire, just to like define our terms here. Spontaneous desire is how we're used to thinking about sexuality. And that's that drive model that like, um, uh, you just have this like urge, this like you're just wandering down the street and or you're eating lunch and suddenly you're like, oh, I would I would really like to have the sexy times. Um, the illustrator for the book, Erica Moen, who draws a webcomic called Ojoy oh Sex Toy, when she illustrates spontaneous desire, she draws it as a lightning bolt to the genitals. Oh, we're just like the sex right now. Kaboom. 
Um, that's how we usually think sexual desire is supposed to work. And it is one of the normal healthy ways to experience sexual desire. That's totally great. And there's this other thing called responsive desire, where instead of kaboom, it's maybe you're like cuddling or snuggling. If this is Netflix and chill, you're just lying there together, maybe like talking and like making out. And your brain notices all that stimulation. I was like, oh, oh, that feels really good. And maybe you do like a little more stuff and your brain's like, oh, actually, that feels that feels super how bad the sexy times that's so spontaneous desire emerges in anticipation of sexual pleasure where responsive desire emerges in response to sexual pleasure bearing in mind that pleasure only happens in a context where your brakes can release so this isn't let's just get started and see what happens or it kind of is but it's um Let's get started. Let's create a context where my brain can interpret the world as a sexy, pleasurable, safe, trusting place. And let's go from there. Um, sometimes it is this cuddle snuggle kind of story. And sometimes it's it's the let's do this. Like it's three o'clock on Saturday afternoon. We said we were going to do this. So let's do this. You, me and the red underwear. Come on. And you like dump the toys in the toy box the kids are over like at the babysitters and you do that you put your body in the bed you put your skin next to your partner's skin and your body remembers oh right i really like this i enjoy this i really like this person um it turns out in research what they found is that couples who sustain strong sexual connections over multiple decades are not couples where they're hot for each other all day, every day. It is not about like seeing your partner and wanting them all the time. That couples who sustain strong sexual connections over a long period of time, one, they have a strong friendship at the foundation of their relationship. And two, they prioritize sex. They decide that it matters to their relationship, that they cordon off some time each week or day or month, however often, to stop doing all the other things that they could be doing with their lives. God knows we're busy enough. They stop doing all those other things and just do this one, let's face it, sort of silly thing that we humans do, <laughs> which is lie down naked with each other and touch each other all over. They decide that it really matters. And that's not the case in every, it doesn't, it's not important for every relationship, but if you want it to be important, it's not about the like, I can't wait. It's about the like, this matters. What there's um one of my favorite analogies, and I uh, I learned this from a sex therapist I met at the Romance Writers Association conference in 2015. She says to her clients, "Okay, so if your best friend invites you to a party, um, of course you say yes because it's your best friend and it's a party. Great." But then as the date begins to approach, you start thinking, oh, I'm going to have to get childcare. There's going to be so much traffic. I have to put on pants on a Friday. <sighs> I just don't know if I want to do this. But what do you do? You drag your ass to the party. You go. And what usually happens? You have a good time at the party. The My, my three-word, I made it rhyme and everything summary of this is pleasure is the measure. Pleasure is the measure of sexual well-being. It's not how much you crave sex. It's not what you do or where you do it or how many orgasms you have or who you do it with or any of those things. It's whether or not you like the sex you are having. Part of that means showing up for for the party, yeah. right? Even yeah. if you're not you, necessarily they, in the mood right then and there, make, having yeah, a willingness you, to do that. Yeah. You. How do you get in the mood? You go there. You go to the mood. 
Which is such an important myth to dispel because I think, unfortunately, the kind of standard and expectation is spontaneous desire. And so when people fall short of that, they just assume maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe there's something wrong Absolutely. with my partner. And, it, and, it, and, and that only can detract, I imagine, from desire and arousal even more so. Oh, just learning the fact that responsive desire is normal. Literally, people told me that single idea has saved their marriage. Um, <laughs> And let's just, it's a brand new idea. The idea that spontaneous desire uh, is how it's supposed to be is not even 50 years old. And it was actually a, a feminist addition to our model of sexual response. It makes a whole lot of sense that we would want desire to be up there. Like a woman has to want to be there. It's just we use the wrong definition of want. We made wanting like active, sort of like create, like, oh, right now I want this, as opposed to wanting to be the active, definite decision, I'm going to go do this in the same way that we want to. I mean, usually I go to like, you exercise, you're like, oh, I don't want to put on my shoes. And then you put on your shoes and you're so glad you did. But it's, it's not so much of a chore. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it really seems like you've done such a wonderful job as using normalization as the antidote to shame and just sort of like reawakening sexual desire. Yeah, the science is, I think, uh, the opposite of the moralizing and the cultural corporate standards that have been set up for us, all the ways we've been lied to all our lives about how sexuality is supposed to work. Turns out this arousal thing, like it's something, but it's not as much as we've been taught. Desire is a thing, but it doesn't work the way we've been taught. Even orgasm, every part of the way our sexuality functions is just not the way that we got taught in the sort of standard narrative of the way sexuality works. And that's that's where the science comes in because it has to be neutral and non-judgmental. Its job is to be neutral and not take anything for granted, not believe any of the assumptions that we all grew up making. And another assumption you've talked about is um, a lot of women feel that something is wrong with them because they can't orgasm from penetration. Right. Um, and I'm curious, how many women actually do orga orgasm with penetration? From uh, so in the in the research, they call it assisted intercourse, uh, and it's about a quarter to a third of women are reliably orgasmic from unassisted penetration. That's um, not that many. The remaining two thirds, maybe sometimes, or rarely, or possibly never, orgasmic from that kind. Yeah, no, it is it is the distinct minority are reliably orgasmic from that kind of penetration. Why? Because the vagina is a very inefficient way to stimulate the clitoris for most people. And for most people, the clitoris is the hokey pokey. It's what it's all about. Mm. For most people, not everyone. I had a woman come up to me after a talk and say, so I actually find it really annoying when my partner touches my clitoris. Am I normal? Yes, yes. Of course, you're normal. There's nothing that is universal. It's pretty much the only thing you can say universally about sexuality is there's no universal. Everybody is different and you have to get to know what your specific partner wants and likes. And oh, by the way, what your partner wants and likes is change depending on the context. Sometimes they will like to be tickled if they're in the right state of mind. And sometimes they'll want to punch you in the face if you tickle them. <laughs> 
So many people develop fetishes or things that arouse them that may not be conventionally perceived as something associated as sexual. I'm wondering if, mm-hmm. if you might be able to speak to fetishes and like how, how do they develop and um, yeah, what, what kind of role they play in sex? Yeah. We don't know for sure, of course. Um, there are a few theories out there. I'll tell you the one that is most compelling to me right now based on the available evidence. And that is, so this whole brakes and gas mechanism, it's in place the day you're born. But there is only one sexually relevant stimulation that is innate, that's there in place when you are born, and that is genital sensations. Those are innately sexually relevant. Um, so here's a baby and uh, gradually over time um, they'll begin to, their brain will link up a combination of changes happening in their physiology. So like there's my genitals behaving in a particular way. Plus there's uh, the internal experience that they have, those emotional sense, the, the physiological sensations they experience um, and the way their attention changes they link those two things up with the cues in the external environment. Uh, And they'll begin to associate particular kinds of stimulation with as sexually relevant because they're associated with genital stimulation. So the hypothesis is that uh, fetishes develop in young people whose brains have begun linking up a very specific kind of stimulus with genital response. They are not innate. It might be that people with very sensitive accelerators are more prone to fetishes because this mechanism is more sensitive and will begin coupling things up uh, more uh, readily. Uh, Most fetishes are in place by adolescence, so like 13, um, and they're far more common in men. We don't know why. And of course, none of this is how sexual orientation works. So the gender of your partner, this is not how that works. It's just like no one is born being turned on by high heels or red painted fingernails or smoking cigarettes. Those are all things that you have to learn uh, through exposure. And is it a similar process um, uh, with fantasies and how fantasies develop? Yeah, fantasies are more complex because they're not just specific stimuli. They're whole stories, generally. Um, If it's not a story, then it basically is just like an object and fetish-like. So stories are like narrative structure and arc, and there's a whole thing about how desire works in narrative arcs. Um, It is important to notice that uh, a thing that turns you on as a fantasy is not necessarily going to be a thing that turns you on in real life because the context of a fantasy is very different from the context of real life. If you're alone in your bed masturbating, imagining being dominated by five strangers, that can be a real turn on because of the novelty of it, because of the power dynamic might turn you on. There's all kinds of things about that that can be a turn on. But you are, in fact, safe in your bed. If you were actually cornered by five strangers, that would be a genuine threat and really scary and is not something that would necessarily turn you on right there in real life. If you wanted to try playing it out in real life and you wouldn't necessarily want to, you'd want to negotiate with people you actually do know to role play them as strangers instead of being actual strangers so that you're not putting yourself in an unsafe situation, which would not actually be sexy for almost anybody. Do you have any advice for couples 
um, on how they can incorporate fantasies into their sex life more? So this is another one of those questions where the answer is really easy and obvious. Like, you do it. You tell your partner what you fantasize about, and then you talk about whether or not you actually want to do it, or if you just want to talk about it, and then if you want to do it, then you negotiate it in the same way you negotiate a vacation. Um, so, of course, the real question, the thing people struggle with is, okay, but if I say my fantasy out loud to my partner, they might be horrified. They might judge me and shame me and be grossed out and never want to touch me again. Um, so the way you lay the groundwork for talking to your partner about your fantasy is to begin with asking for permission and asking them to receive your fantasy in a really neutral, gentle kind of way. Hey, look, I really, I want to, I want to, I want to share this because I want, I love our sex life and I want us to go even deeper with this. I want to tell you something and it's a little, I'm not sure how you're going to respond. So it matters a lot to me that you just like, you just listen and know that I'm sharing this with you because I want us to connect sexually. So you lay that groundwork and you have the person like get into a space where they're going to be like, all right, tell me. Uh, and they can listen in that neutral kind of way. And when your partner tells you their fantasies, you receive it in that same neutral, non-judgmental, okay, kind of way. Like that's new. All right. Notice that it might hit your brakes. You know, that flush of shame you felt as like a, you know, tween in school learning about you're going to have a similar kind of flush of like, ah, potentially you just let that move through. Yeah, that's a reflex that got built into you long before you ever got to choose how you wanted to feel about sexuality. And on the other, at the, it will, their feelings are tunnels. You have to move all the way through them to get to the light at the end. You get to the end of the initial flush of like, this is new and I'm not sure how I'm allowed to feel about it. And you're like, this fantasy that made me have a flush of, ah, is a part of this person I love and care about. And so let me work on the assumption that all that crap I learned before is wrong. All the crap you learned before is wrong. People are allowed to do anything they want to. Consenting peers can, of any number, of any gender, are allowed to do anything. They, if you want to, like, fuck your partner's armpit, you are allowed <laughs> to fuck your partner's armpit. There's a term for it. It's called axillary intercourse. You're allowed to do anything you want. Anything. No judgment. So whatever your partner says, you might have that initial gut reaction. Whatever you say, your partner might have that initial gut reaction because we've been taught that. But fuck all that. Like, never mind all that. You move through that and you get to like, that fantasy is a part of this person I love. And so what if it's awesome? Maybe it's awesome. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And I imagine that um, because of those old shame-based feelings, sometimes people need a little inspiration to even figure out what their fantasies could be and open up their Absolutely. mind to those possibilities. Yeah, another reason why I love reading romance novels, why I recommend romance novels for people who are like looking for ideas. Romance authors are very creative. So it seems like communication... And Mm. <laughs> it seems like communication, kind of a non-judgmental stance towards yourself and your partner and being able to negotiate what you want in bed are really important to kind of 
maintaining and keeping sex alive between partners. Are there are there any other kind of ingredients or pieces that you think are important to keeping um, and maintaining a healthy sex life in relationships? There's a baseline component of, I mean, people like me are always saying, make sure you say what you want, ask for what you want, tell your partner what you like. Um, but because pleasure is so sensitive to context, there are a lot of people, especially women, who genuinely do not know what they like. Because, you know, you get together with a partner and you're worried about making sure you're meeting their expectations. Like here's this person you kind of care about and you're being really vulnerable with them. You want to make sure you're meeting their expectations. You want to find and make sure they're experiencing pleasure. And you know, they're, they, they're like, no, what gives me pleasure is your pleasure. And so you're like, Oh shit, I have to give you my pleasure now. I don't even know how to do that. Um, and so you get trapped in this place where you're like acting you're doing sex the way you think you're supposed to be doing the sex and assuming that the way it feels must be what pleasure feels like. Uh, just because it's the thing your partner is doing and you know you're supposed to like the thing your partner is doing because that's the thing that makes them happy. Um, so the a fundamental component is beginning to notice what pleasure feels like in your body. I recommend masturbation for everybody so that they can recognize pleasure. Then when you get into a sexual context with your partner, you'll be able to tell the difference between what feels like, oh yeah, that's what pleasure feels like in my body versus no, that's, that's not the thing. Uh, when you can communicate that in the complicated context of making sure you're meeting your partner's needs as well as getting your own needs met, that's like, that's the foundation of everything. Uh, and because women were taught, ah, uh, don't touch that from the very beginning, their bodies don't belong to them. They will often measure their sexual well-being in terms of their partner satisfaction. Even if they're experiencing pain, they will tolerate the pain because they're doing the thing that gives their partner satisfaction. Pain is the one and only thing that I will call not normal sex. If you're experiencing pain, get thee to a medical provider. Um, everything else that you experience, totally normal and probably something that you can cope with on your own. Um, the time to seek non-medical support is with these communication issues. Like, I, you don't listen to me when I tell you what I want or like, or I don't even know what I want or like. Sex therapy is really good at both of those things, how to get people to listen to each other and how to listen to themselves and communicate to the partner what they're noticing inside their own body. Again, women get taught to believe other people's opinions about their bodies more than they believe what their bodies themselves, what their own internal experience is trying to tell them. So building that trust with your own internal experience is the foundation of a healthy, joyful sexual connection in a long-term relationship. Yeah, so important. Um, we focused a lot on women's sexuality. I'm curious if you have any advice for men, if you were to give men one piece of advice. For their own sexuality or men who are having sex with women? Men who are having sex with women. Yeah, listen to the women. <laughs> <laughs> so because we live in, you know, a patriarchy, ugh, we have this sort of like 
if men are the default, the way men's sexuality work, we assume is the way sexuality is supposed to work. And the ways that a woman's sexuality varies from a man's sexuality, we assume must mean that she's broken just because she's different from what a man is. That's not true. So men should know that just because your partner is different from you doesn't mean there's anything wrong with her. She's fine. She's just not identical to you. And that's okay. You got to work with who the person actually is, not with what you believe they're supposed to be. Yeah. yeah. Or as we tell our kindergartners, listen to her words. Yeah. So listen up, guys. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, Emily, as we wrap up, uh, what is next for you? What's on the horizon? I'm writing a second book. Uh, this one is titled Burnout, and it's about you know, burnout. When I was touring with the book, I was talking to women all over the place about what they found most helpful. And it turns out, even though the sex science, all the things we talked about today were great and important for lots of people, uh, they really were interested in the non-sex emotion stuff. I have a whole chapter about stress and love. uh, And people really found that that transformative, that section. So I'm building on that. It's a whole book about when you feel exhausted and overwhelmed by everything you're doing, and yet somehow are worried that you're not doing enough. Mm. it's about that feeling thank you so much uh, for all the information that you've shared today this has been very helpful for me for Simone and for all our listeners I'm so glad it was a pleasure hope you enjoyed the podcast and thanks for listening we also want to thank Point and Passing for their original music for a podcast and website design Be sure to subscribe to Lovelink on iTunes and leave us a review. Register for our upcoming one-day couples workshop on November 11th based on the powerful model of emotion-focused couples therapy to help you reconnect with your partner and enhance your love. You can sign up at www.lovelink.co. See you next time.